Hey everyone, welcome back to Garden State of Hockey. We finally can actually talk about the hockey part, John. That's right, there are actual games. Games involving NHL players, not just prospects and AHLers. Actual guys who will make actual money in a couple weeks. It's crazy that it's been such a long summer and we finally got to see it manifested. And I think it was exciting for some people yesterday in some locations where the Devils were playing. But we'll get to more on that in a little bit. Again, you've joined Garden State of Hockey. My name's Dan Roselle, and I'm joined by John Fisher. And before we get to the Devils preseason split squad games, which, don't worry, we will be talking about them, we want to follow up on an item that we discussed a couple weeks ago. And, John, I believe you brought it up. But we had the resolution of the discussion regarding reopening the CBA. The NHLPA responded by also declining the option to renegotiate for now. So what does this mean in terms of moving forward for the league and the players? What this means is that the CBA is going to last for another two years. So it's not going to, we don't have to worry about this decision again until 2022, meaning the full 10 year, yeah, 10 year plan is going to be fulfilled. Now, effectively, we a more cynical person would say this kicks the can down the road. It means we're going to have to deal with this in two seasons, and there will have to be a new CBA. The difference is the NHL would have more incentive to not lock out the players. You have Seattle coming in, new TV contract, lots of momentum over the last decade. So the players may be the ones to be instigating a real struggle here because they could use this as leverage. But both sides are talking. Both sides are declining to uh, end it now, which is always a positive thing. So we wait. Yeah, I'd love for it to be resolved and renegotiated before the 11th hour next time they try to do something like this. But it's good for now that we don't have to worry about it for at least a couple of years. And yeah, you mentioned the incoming Seattle revenue. I think that is a big reason why, you know, they don't want to show this level of instability when they're adding a new franchise. It hasn't stopped them before, but maybe they'll get it right this time around. Well, remember, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, and historically, the NHL has won all these lockouts because... As bad as it may look, as bad as you and I may complain about it, the NHL gets what they want. Yeah. <laughs> it's simple as that. There's a reason why it keeps happening. It keeps working. Yeah, it's true. And, I mean, you can even look at the revenue difference between when the cap was first initiated and when where it is now. Like, it's clear that it's just going up and up and up, and fans are coming back to the game and being added in droves, despite the fact that there were the, the reason the salary cap was instituted was post lockout. And then there was another lockout after that, at least a temporary one. So you're right. People keep coming back and it does keep working because they know that people will always come back for the product. So I don't really know what kind of leverage the players would have in the next negotiation other than like, like what can you even say? Like, does the league, does it matter that much to the league? Obviously it does in terms of getting the viewership, but they can still take a pretty hard line stance in negotiations. They certainly could. And there's also that other factor that the union itself, historically, the NHLPA has had a lot of issues. If you want to be really depressed about the union's past, you can read up about Gary Eagleson. I'm not going to get into that. That's a whole we could do podcasts, plural about that, that history. But you based on how the CBA is structured and based on just the fact that you're dealing with young guys coming in the league and they're going to have different needs and desires than players in their mid-20s, players in their late-20s, players in their 30s. Everybody's got different incentives and different education levels and different uh, demands. So the big struggle for any for the NHLPA in particular is going to be, what are you all getting united about? And will you unite about it? And the NHL is pretty confident that, you know, as you say, they could take a hardline stance because they can afford it. Are the players going to have the stomach for the fight? And more importantly, can they stick to it? But this is a discussion for two years from now, so we don't have to worry about it. We can talk about the actual product that happened last night. Yeah, so let's table that talk, like you said, and get down to breaking down these split squad games. Um, I watch them picture in picture because I'm a lunatic and I like to <laughs> divert my attention. So I primarily, you know, you and I had an agreement. I primarily focus on the Montreal game and you'd primarily watch Boston, uh, you know, whenever available. So I want to go through those games because there was a pretty big disparity in who showed up in which location. It seemed like 
for obvious reasons, the roster back in New Jersey taking on the Bruins was stacked with the new NHL level players and not as many prospects, but definitely emphasizing some of the people they want to show off in front of the home crowd. And the squad in Montreal was a little bit more of a veteran squad, but also some fringe players that did have decent showings despite them getting the loss. So do you want to start us off with kind of the breakdown of the overtime win against Boston? Absolutely. So you're absolutely right, Dan. The Devils in Newark, I was not there personally, but thanks to the New Jersey Devils, they streamed their uh, Jumbotron feed, their Deviltron feed. I don't know what that big screen is actually called. (laughs) The Deviltron's super a great screen. name. Hold on. Can we email them and tell them to call it the Deviltron? So the Deviltron, <laughs> you know, you got to see that. And of course, that also meant you got to see all the graphics, the the picture-in-picture picture replay. So in your case, Dan, you had some moments where you got to see picture-in-picture in, picture in your picture-in-picture. Picture. Yep. Something so Exhibit thinks that uh, he's hooking you up, dog. <laughs> more importantly than that. Um, but other – and, you know, the other issues with the, the Deviltron feed is that – you only had Matt Laughlin calling the game. No color commentator. I like Matt, but it's hard to do a hockey game by yourself. It's hard to do any sport by yourself, speaking from like some experience. Baseball's the most excruciating, but this was it was clear when he was, you know, just trying to fill space, which it's a preseason game, so it doesn't matter as much, but Yeah. It's kinda of tough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also and more I felt worse for the producer director the guy in the truck the girl in the truck whoever it is because the camera the camera person just kept missing some plays oh, man. like it wouldn't keep up with the play in some cases which was which was notable because the devils definitely had the speedier players jack hughes flew through the game nikita gusev flew through the game jesper bokvist flew through the game miles would look slow in this game <laughs> that's how fast these guys look and i highlight those three particular players gusev bokvist and excuse me hughes because they were among the best Devils forwards on the ice. Hughes, this was in many ways the perfect preseason game for him. It Anybody who had any questions about how would he handle a game, how would he handle playing his third game out of four potential games since becoming a Devil, how would he handle playing against a mostly Providence squad that certainly doesn't want to respect the man. They're not, I mean, they're playing for jobs, they're playing for spots, so there was definitely some intensity from them. And Hughes demonstrated why he's the number one pick. He scored a beautiful power play goal to open the scoring. He made some excellent passes to Gusev. I understand it's preseason game number one. You don't want to make conclusions based on your first preseason game. But if you were to tell me that Nikita Gusev and Jack Hughes should be stapled together for the rest of the season, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue against you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so far the early returns are great. How many times have you watched that overtime goal over and over? Oh, it was fantastic. The overtime goal was just fantastic. One, to see Gusev, Subban, and Hughes on the ice together, that, that's kind of a dream compared to some of the combinations we got to see last season. But just as importantly, Hughes started the play with a defensive play, and that's another aspect I also liked about Hughes' game, was that it wasn't just offense. He committed to defense. He didn't overshoot his man. He wasn't afraid of fighting for the puck, winning a battle. He was the one that jarred the puck loose to get the whole rush going. He led that rush. He made a great drop pass to Gusev and immediately went to the net. The two Boston Bruin guys were just not in the right positions. They didn't keep up with the man. And Gusev said, oh, look, a lane. Pass, shot, score. So Hughes scores two goals in his first preseason game, wins the preseason game, first star of the game, fully deserved. Dell's fans in the, in the audience, now you know why this guy was special. Yeah, there's, there's only a few. I mean, obviously, there's going to be nitpicks every game. Nobody's perfect, but oh yeah, he showed up. And I think the biggest takeaways that he could have in terms of Moving forward, I mean, one, he's going to get knocked off the puck. That's just a consequence of how old he is in his stature. But hopefully he learns how to uh, avoid that at NHL speed, which it seemed like he was doing in the latter periods yesterday. But also face-offs have to be a little better. If he's going to keep playing center, which he should be playing center, that's where they drafted him for, he's got to go better than four for 16. And again, that's a learning curve that he'll get. This is why you do it in the preseason. Yeah, but Hughes is so good at winning the puck, and he's going to be playing with guys who are also good at winning the puck that I'm not super concerned about the faceoffs. Well, even if he in the loses bigger, it, in the bigger, so yeah. it's not like he's standing there, loses the faceoff, gets dejected, and then just stops skating. He no. will lose the faceoff, and then will chase the puck and usually get it. That was a big plus, in my opinion. The best devil on the ice actually wasn't Hughes; it was Subban. Mm. That pair, that Vatnin and Subban pairing was awesome. Vatnin was playing on the left side to Subban, which I didn't expect. 
I typically have Vatnin as a right-handed guy. I think that's how it'll be used. Again, it's preseason, so they're obviously mixing and matching wherever they see fit. But Subban was a monster out there. If you wanted an example of why this guy's a big deal, you got to see it. And I and again, like Hughes, you're going to find nitpicks in his game. You're going to say, oh, he lost the puck too many times. He held on to it too many times. But that's be, that's what makes them great is that they have the confidence and they have the skill set to justify why they have the pucks on their stick to make the plays that they do. There was a sequence for a good 15 seconds where Subban pulls America Zidliski drives this puck into the zone, circles around because he didn't have a play. But unlike Zidlisky, who would have, I don't know, tried something and failed, Subban <laughs> maintained possession. He fought off two def- he fought off two defending Bruins players, drew a penalty. The guy tried to foul him. He didn't he didn't succeed. Subban still had the puck on his stick. He set up another pass and that led to another great scoring chance before the power play started. Like that's a strong man. In fact, there was even a moment in the first period where a Bruin, I didn't get the guy's name, skated real hard. Oh, yeah. Trying to show him, yeah, I'm here in the league. Yeah, welcome to the preseason. We're going to get this done. Full speed right into Subban. Guy falls over and Subban's just like, eh. And it was hilarious. It was hilarious, but it also... bounced right off him a la Ovechkin. Exactly, but it also demonstrates that Subban really is a big deal in this regard. And truth be told, I don't like... You know, we kind of mocked it in an earlier episode about the bigness and the size and the strength of players. But truth be told, it is rather helpful to have a guy that you you know is going to stand up to pressure and he's going to play in a position where you're going to face it and he can dish it out. But he's not just some Ben Lovejoy or Colin White or uh, Alexander Volchenkov or, you know, one of these players that's only or Bryce Salvador. I forgot his name. Just one of these one-dimensional players. Like, Subban absolutely brings it at both ends. And similar to Hughes, you know, there's going to be some times where you're just going to find nitpicks in it. But last night, he was awesome. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, he, he had one, like, particularly bad giveaway where he got bailed out. Um, I think it was still... Uh, was Schneider still in net by that point? I think so. But that's the thing, Dan, is that every defenseman is going to have some real howlers. You know, Andy Green has had committed some of the worst giveaways I've ever seen in my life. And that was back when I was demanding he be on the Olympic team for the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, it just happens. Like, guys make mistakes. Sidney Crosby, I, I, this is relevant to Hughes, but Tom Fitzgerald, the assistant GM to the Devils, uh, made a great quote about Hughes to say, look, I got to see Sidney Crosby in Pittsburgh. And Sidney, we turned the puck over a lot, but that's that's what you get for a guy who's special like this they're going to take chances they're going to make moves they're going to do things no one else does and you just take the good with the bad and honestly he gives you way way so much good or way too much good rather than the bad so same same with Subban I I got to see that in parallel I'm glad you brought up the goaltending because I was generally pleased with the goaltending um, I wrote this in my preview you know if there's any position you want to focus on in the, in the whole preseason it's the goaltending play because that's going to you know, the Devils are going to live and die by their goaltending this season. So it's important to see how well they look. Uh, despite giving up three goals, I didn't think anybody gave up a real bad goal. You could argue Schneider's one goal against was kind of soft. But for the most part, he made a lot of tough saves. Uh, he looked good going post to post. Sen looked much better than he did in the prospect challenge. But then again, in that prospect challenge game against Buffalo, he was hung out to dry every <laughs> other shift. So, right. um, so both guys, I thought, did well in Boston. It was what I would call acceptable amount of goaltending. Basically, you make a couple good saves. You didn't do anything too ridiculous. Maybe you could have done a little bit better in, in a couple spots, but for the most part, you gave them enough. You gave the team a chance to win the game, and lo and behold, the Devils won the game. Yeah, he looked dialed in. He looked focused. He looked like he was tracking the puck well. It was really cool to see. It looked he, – he was never out of position from what I saw. It was It was really – Nice to have that reassurance, at least. Like, I, I felt pretty comfortable having Schneider backstopping this. I mean, in terms of the new guys coming in, too, that I know they were trying to display, it looked like it took Gusev maybe a period to get going. But mm. tell me a little bit about, maybe not so many new guys, but one potential one, Travis and the Jespers. They looked electric yesterday. Yeah, they looked real solid. I felt bad for Brat, especially because he had some great a scoring chances he got robbed on a couple of them like boston's goaltender they made a goaltending change halfway through the game and valdar's his second save just like absolutely stonewalls brat on a one-timer that nine times out of ten is back in the back of the net brat honestly looked 
like the brat that we you know we've come to know and love and hope will be a cornerstone winger of the future. Bulkvist looked solid. There were a couple times where I could see some of the original draft criticisms that he's a very much a perimeter player, but he did go in as needed. And Zajac honestly held his own with two much faster, much younger, non defensive minded players like not that brat and Bokvist are terrible defensively but they're not two guys that you would trust out there on a penalty kill if you know what i mean mm-hmm. so but i thought that that line did perform well they didn't they don't get the the cred that the hughes line did and obviously what suban and vatnin did but they definitely had a solid outing for them brat's gonna probably still wish he scored a couple goals <laughs> on monday but I don't think he should feel that disappointed in his performance. He had the sort of game where if he has night, more nights like that, he's going to score a bunch of goals. Yeah, and luckily for him, his spot's not really in question either, so it's not as crucial for him to score in the preseason. As long as we're seeing the hallmarks that made him really exciting to watch his first couple of games as a rookie, and you know, unfortunately he ran into some bad injury luck last year, but he looks really, really smooth skating. He looks like he's constantly creating opportunities. Uh, he did really well yesterday. I was very, very impressed with him. And in terms of Boquist flying along with these guys, how much do you think that helped his stock in terms of taking a roster spot? We, we've talked about this at length, but yeah. that game yesterday, how much do you think that accomplished in you know getting towards his goal? I think it helped. Um, I wouldn't say – I wouldn't start penciling him into the lineup, but I think it helped his cause. I think it guarantees him some more preseason looks. Mm-hmm. I think the Devils are going to try to stick, keep him with NHL players. The fact he was paired mostly with Zajac, Brett, who was on a power play unit with Hughes. These are signs, if you will, signs that the coaching staff wants to see how you do with NHL players. He wasn't, no disrespect to the Joey Andersons, the Mikhail Maltzovs of the world, but Bokvist wasn't playing with those guys, and that says something. So yeah. I think the Devils are definitely interested. I think he did well enough to warrant uh, a longer look. So job, you know, job done. Mm-hmm. Check in the box, so to speak. Take a step forward. Let's see what you can do in the next uh, couple games. On the on the kind of negative end for the Boston game, at least, I thought mm-hmm. the bottom six save Joey Anderson was pretty invisible, and then Jacobs didn't look great. But there wasn't much else to complain about for me. What, mm-hmm. what, would, you, what would you want to see a little differently? I'll agree that the bottom six for the Devils weren't that good. Boston picked on them in the run of play. In fact, the Devils, if, I, if you were to talk about a team negative, the third period would be a great one. I understand the Devils went up in the game, so Boston kind of went off. But you would figure with the talent level, the Devils could have acquitted themselves much better than they actually did. Mm-hmm. But but you're right. The Sharon Govich-led line with Studenich and Anderson, they didn't do much outside of uh, – they didn't do much, and neither did the Maltzov line. I will say I liked Anderson and Maltzov a lot on the penalty kill. Mm-hmm. As a penalty killing group, you know, on the penalty kill, those guys were great. They had some offensive chances. Maltsev actually acquitted himself quite well. If nothing else, those two guys will help Binghamton's PK in the coming season. But neither of these guys and none of the, none of the other bottom six guys helped their cause, not even for a remote shot at the NHL. So it is what it is. And as far as the defense, Jacobs, he wasn't really that good. Smith and Carrick weren't that good either. Carrick got torched. Uh, for that first goal against that, that was definitely bad for him. And Smith, I understand. And Matt Laughlin made this point. You, he, he can't really do anything more in junior. So if you're the devils, like what can you do? You can't put him in the AHL because he's too young going to junior is a waste of time, but nothing about his game yesterday says he should be in the NHL. I'm not saying he's a scrub and shouldn't belong. It's just that if both of us took a step forward, Smith just kind of stayed in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carrick did also manage to score, but he he didn't have he that did difficult score a goal. of a task. That is true. <laughs> this is true. Carrick did score a nice goal, and hey, credit to him for getting in position to score the goal. But from a defensive standpoint, a run-of-play standpoint, um, not very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this game also you know should have featured Simmons, but he was out with an injury. Neither yeah. of these games featured Hall. It's going to look, obviously, very different. But for what roles everyone was playing yesterday, just... In terms of the top two lines, both offensively and uh, to a lesser extent, you know, the second line defensively, but definitely the first line, they look ready. They look like they're ready to go for the season. That's good because that comprised mostly of players who should and definitely will be on the roster. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I always, 
I don't like the chemistry argument, like, oh, just keep guys together and keep them together for a while, and they'll figure out chemistry. Gusev and Hughes maybe only had, what, a couple practices together ever? Yep. Those two guys look like they've been playing together for years. That's what happens with at this level, Dan, is that it doesn't take very long to figure out who plays well with who. It either works or it really doesn't work that well. And to that extent, that's why I said earlier, if you want to staple these two guys together, go ahead and do it. Because Hughes was making no-look passes to Gusev. And Gusev was dropping dimes going towards 86 and Wood and Bokvist and whoever else was open. Like, these two guys know what they're doing. And that's a big plus. If, if, if you're looking long-term, that could be the bigger win outside of actually winning the game. And when's the last time you saw any Devils player jumping up and down after an overtime preseason win? Well, I have to go back to the last preseason. I'm sure the you know the players are competitive. I'm sure they were hyped up for it. I love Subban's comment after the game. You know, he's basically teasing Hughes to say, "Come on, you could do more than just score one goal." And I'm, I have a feeling Hughes probably didn't take it as a joke. It was like, "I'll show you. Yeah, I'm going to score a goal." Which, hey, that's your motivation. Whatever method. it takes, yeah, make it happen. Let's go. The, play- the playoffs are, are paramount by any means necessary. Motivation, how you like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, any, any other notes on Boston before uh, we move on to Montreal? I think the only other concern I have outside of the third period not being a very good period outside of the Devils scoring first uh, first and second goals in that game is discipline. As much as the Devils might have good penalty-killing players, Dan, that's not a situation you want to keep finding yourself on a night-to-night basis. Right. But it's also the first night of preseason. Guys are rusty. Refs are also rusty everybody's kind of getting into shape. So it's one thing I'm okay with for the most part, but if we're still talking about five, six penalty kills by next, by next week in Columbus, then this is going to be a bigger problem for the season. Mm-hmm. No, that's totally fair. And that's been an issue for a couple seasons now. Like, yeah, the penalty kill was always ranked pretty highly during Heinz's. Well, I don't know if that's true, but the last couple seasons it was ranked yeah, it's, pretty it, high. It, it, it's it's consistently in the top half of the league in terms of penalty killing, but they get so many opportunities. Like I would hope that they've practiced it enough by this point in game situations that they would be good because otherwise they would have been even worse than 28th last year. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, as great as your penalty kill is the devil's finished 29th last season. So how how important is a great penalty kill in the bigger picture of things? Like, yeah, you, you want to be a good penalty killing team, but it's not going to make the difference between being one of the worst teams and one of the best teams. No, it's important in, enabling you to become one of the best teams, but that single-handedly will not do it. Yeah, and that's why all the stats I keep espousing on the site for years and years and years are keep focusing on five-on-five five because, truth be told, the majority of your game is going to be at five-on-five. Five. So if there's any one area you want to be good in, make it that. But the Devils overall were good at five-on-five five in Boston. Montreal, eh. But again, it was a weaker ro- roster in Montreal. Yeah, and it was also a pretty weak roster for Boston, I'd say. There were not too many NHL names in there. Uh, Montreal had more of their marquee players, but still, you know, not too many. But Domi was playing, uh, Shea Weber was playing, and the squad in Montreal from the Devils, as you alluded to, was definitely not the strongest. This one felt more like it had more long shots. Like, the first line is pretty locked in. Coleman, Heischer, Palmieri, they're all going to make it no matter what, but... Other than that, you look through the lineup, and there's, on the offensive side at least, and even on the defensive side beyond Butcher Severson, there's not too much to be sure of with this roster. Blackwood started the game in net as well, but, you know, beyond Coleman, Heischer, Palmieri, Butcher Severson, who can you confidently say, oh yeah, throw in Blackwood and maybe Mueller because he has the contract, but just looking through, is there anyone that you could say would help their stock with a reasonable chance to make the team. Well, Rooney and Hayden, because of their contract situations, I think have an inside track to a degree, Mm -hmm. but you're right. Like there's plenty more to prove among these guys. And because you look at the lineup on paper and the majority of it is really a Binghamton roster Mm -hmm. outside of the six player, or I'm sorry, seven players we mentioned Rooney and Mike, Rooney and Hayden are maybe eight and nine in terms of NHL players. And even then they're kind of on the, they're kind of on the fence here. I'm not a big fan of Kevin Rooney's game, John Hayden, you know, he's, he was traded for John Quenville. He played on a bad Chicago team last year. Maybe he's a NHL player that remains to be seen. That being said, I will say that despite the weaker roster, they didn't get killed. 
And you could argue that they may have been hard done a little bit based on my understanding of what happened in the game. Mm-hmm. And I guess that in of itself is a positive. The fact that you could take a less than A squad, more of a B, B, B plus squad, and I'm being generous with B plus here, and they didn't get creamed by uh, an arguably stronger Montreal team yeah, in, so in their building. No they less. went down pretty early. They went down to nothing pretty quickly into the game, but then they held the fort pretty well. They got a goal late in the first by Will Butcher with a nice shot. Butcher actually looks pretty good, uh, or he looked pretty good in Montreal, but he uh, managed to make it a little closer, and then the game evened up on a weird bounce where the puck sat for Mike McLeod. Uh, and it looked like they were just going to hold and maybe have both games go into overtime until Severson tripped over himself on the power play and then allowed oh, they allowed wow. a shorthanded goal. So that's it was kind of tragic to see a game end that way, preseason or not. But, you know, they, they didn't look too bad with the exception of the first period i thought mcleod actually did really really well mcleod made a strong case and a lot of people were saying you know before he kind of rush in head first he knew he was fast so he thought i need to maximize this ability of mine all the time instead like Miles of would, yeah right instead of using it as an asset and saying i can think about this stuff a little faster and execute faster but let me take a look at what's actually going on and use the speed more selectively that's something that it seems from development camp on has improved for Mike McLeod, at least in comparison to other years that he's been close to making the team. So I think he did a lot yesterday to make a name for himself, make a case for himself moving forward. Yeah, and that's important because for the players, as we've discussed in the past, there's not really any open spots. And Bokovic and Smith, you know, have an extra incentive outside of everyone else. But for the Bigmanton players that are likely like <laughs> McLeod, you know, Fighting for that first call-up spot is an important thing in this camp. And it's also, a lot of these guys are going to be probably cut, I would say, after the Islanders game on Saturday. Since Binghamton's going to have their training camp start next week, they need players for it. Right. You know, these guys are being evaluated by Rick Kowalski and the other coaching staff from Binghamton. Like, everybody's in Newark right now. So, doing well in these games helps your cause of getting a first-line spot in Binghamton. It helps your cause of being on the top unit in Binghamton. And if you do well there, New Jersey will say, oh, if we need a forward, let's call it McLeod. And that's that's an important thing. So credit to him for doing well. Credit to him for – it sounds like he played a much smarter game than maybe what it seemed like last season. Uh, Related to that, Dan, since you got to check out this game, outside of Butcher and Severson, this defense (laughs) – Oh, <laughs> what, what, what can you tell me about Dakota Mermis, Matt Tennyson, Colton White with Mirko Mueller just kind of hanging around them? So playing ten- off wing, no less. Tennyson and White, I could kind of hear get involved sometimes. Mermis and Mueller, I didn't I didn't even see them or hear them. It was basically like they didn't play in this game, which I guess is like kind of fine. But it's we weren't expecting much out of this defensive roster. You know, the majority of the. Uh, starting defense was still in Newark. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, since they're going up against Max Domi, they're going up against, I'm just quickly looking at some of the names here, Jonathan Drouin. They got to see Nick Suzuki, who's a prospect for them, but you know he's a top prospect for them. Other NHL players in their lineup, like Arturi Lekkanen, Charles Houdon, Del Weiss. Okay, I'm kind of stretching on Jordan NHL. Jordan Wheel. Yeah, when I say Jordan Wheel and Nate Thompson, I'm kind of stretching a little bit, but... They have NHL histories, you know, they're on that level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in theory here, you know, your your big concern when you see especially new guys to the organization like Tennyson and Mermis, that you ask yourself, okay, are these guys just going to get destroyed? And did they get destroyed is my question. No, they. I wouldn't say they got destroyed. I'd say the goals that they gave up, yeah, there were some tough looks defensively, but for the majority of the game, it didn't feel like they were too out of their depth or didn't get hemmed in uh, all too much from what i saw again i was watching kind of split attention yeah, you're, yeah um, i understand but it didn't look like the devils were just constantly hemmed in it looked more like that watching the montreal game than it did watching the boston game obviously but i don't think they were too out of their depth in the third period it kind of looked like they were having a majority of the time in the offensive zone okay that's fair so just to sort of put a button on this there are two other questions I, I wanted to ask about the Montreal game. Sure. First and foremost is it is my understanding is that the Devils had some goals taken away in that game. 
were they legit calls? Um, well, I wish I knew what you were referring to. Um, uh, I was under the impression because Matt Laughlin said it during the Boston broadcast that, oh, Blake Coleman tied up the game 16 seconds into the second period. And then you go to NHL.com and it's, oh, it's, they're still down by one. And then Matt Laughlin, like eight minutes later goes, well, they're, you know, it's preseason for NHL, you know, preseason for all of us. So I was mistaken about the Coleman goal. Oh, okay. I don't remember what the, um, I, I remember seeing that and I remember it being taken away. I don't remember what the controversy was about though, but I do okay. remember seeing them celebrating something. I was like, Oh, what I miss. And then there's no goal on the board a couple of minutes later. So I was like, okay, probably nothing happened here. I, yeah, sorry. I just don't remember what exactly happened there, but yeah. I also know there was a goal by Jignac or Gignac. Or, yep. I'm not going to get this guy's name. I know that I one for sure. Everyone. That one was goalie interference. Okay. There, there's little question about that. Like, okay. was Bastion pushed into him maybe to an extent, but I don't think he's entirely blameless okay. for That's going fair. into the goalie, and Gignac just kind of cleaned up whatever was in front. I understand. Okay. So, just as a, again, to put a button on this is – Okay, McLeod sounds like he did well to help his stock, so to speak, which is good. Mm -hmm. Did any other devil that we don't expect to be in New Jersey on October 4th help themselves, even if we know they have no chance of making the New Jersey roster? Did any, Basically, did anybody else rise up in this one? Oh, boy, that's a really good question. I, I think uh, Brandon Baddock was really present. I think he, really, yeah, which was surprising, but I took note of his number a couple times because he was out there flying around throwing hits left and right, and uh, some of them were sillier than others in terms of run of play. But <laughs> silly, yeah, just because there's like no reason to really hit someone other than the fact yeah. that it's preseason and you got all this you know energy spilling over. But yeah, I think, okay, I get it. Yeah, so he, I mean, he's a big guy. We know that about him, and he was definitely throwing his weight around. I was actually pretty pleased with how he performed. He's the, just the name that immediately jumped to mind because I kept seeing his number and being like, oh, who's that guy? I kept checking on who it was. Um, so that's good. He made some sort of an impression at least. He was entertaining, it sounds like. He was definitely entertaining. entertaining. It, you know, the, the whole hockey thing, that's whatever. It's fine. You just throw some hits around. That's what you're there for. If you're going to make the team, you lean into the features that they drafted you for at this point. So there you go. I would say, yeah, if anyone helped their stock, he won't make the team, but Baddock. Good call. Bold yep. call, I would say. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean. Because, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the man who finished dead last in our top 2525 list. But he did make the 25, <laughs> unlike some other people who were here. Okay. <laughs> I know it's a stretch to say that, but there's a lot of the top 25 that's already on the roster, like, locked in. So maybe yeah. it's, like, a different type of tiering as well. Um, okay. that we can consider hey, make, make most of the shot. Yeah. That's all you can do. And after these games, we only had one cut of a player who participated in these games. So the devils cut, they made their first cups, cuts, cups, cuts to the roster. And that includes sending back Mitchell Holscher and Graham Clark to Ottawa alongside Nikita Kachuk and Xavier Bernard to Charlottetown, Michael Vukajevic back to Kitchener, and Akira Schmidt back to Omaha of the USHL, as well as sending Eamon McAdam, a goaltender, to Binghamton. So only one of those guys participated in the split squad contest yesterday, and that was Graham Clark. So nothing really significant based on the play in these two games. But yeah, Clark, you know, he was good during development camp. He was good in the prospects tournament. It just looks like he needs a little bit more time, but I think he can be impressive moving down the line. Yeah, and for these guys, like the junior seasons, if they haven't started already, they're about to. So it's important that they go to a place where they can get big minutes. Because let's be real, out of the six junior players that you just mentioned, zero of them have a chance of making the New Jersey roster. They can't go play in the AHL anyway, so there's no value to just keeping them around unless you really think they, there's something there. Um, I will point out that Bernard and even McAdam, the AHL goaltender, they were brought to Montreal for some reason, but they weren't used. So maybe they were thinking maybe, but then they went in a different direction. So, mm -hmm. hey, at least they got selected. So there's yeah. that. No, definitely. I mean, they, they know, they had to know that some version of this was coming, especially for everyone here that's not Graham Clark. Like, they weren't really 
designed to play these games anyway or to go much further in camp so they got hopefully good experience in the starting days of training camp got to get a few pointers for some of the veterans and had good development camp so uh, good for them and all the best to them moving forward yep and this brings the devils down to 50 players in camp there's a lot more cuts to be made again i think most of them are going to happen after that islanders game because that's where you're going to start moving all your guys to bingmonton so to speak so you know, the next three games for a couple of these guys are going to be important games. If not to make New Jersey, then to give yourself a better chance to making it in Binghamton. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to take a short break and come back with some more prospect stuff. I know we're almost at the season, but we've got some stuff to take care of. And then hopefully we'll teach John how to pronounce Binghamton in the break. Uh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, thanks for listening. And here's a word from some of our sponsors who support us here. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back, everyone. We've got the top 25 under 25 prospects list. And, John, how far are we getting today? We are near the top five. Ooh. But that's what I mean. We're near it. So we're actually talking about spots six through ten. So Brian posted that up on Tuesday, which is yesterday for this recording, or today for this recording, I should say. But the fact of the matter is we are near the end of the top 25. We're going to reveal next week who finished. In first hmm. but before we get there we have to see who finished from 10th onward so let me run through it uh and then we could discuss it a, a little bit mm-hmm. some of these guys are guys we're going to see plenty of in the next uh, season or the upcoming season so coming in at number 10 coming up from 13th last year is joey anderson joey anderson uh crawled up the list a little bit he did have an extensive call up last season he actually turned out to be a very good penalty killer despite not playing a lot of minutes it's hard to really just keep him as just a specialist he's still 21 but at at a minimum you get a sense that the coaches know he works hard he's a pretty smart player he does have a limited offensive upside so it's becoming more and more apparent that if he's going to make it he's probably going to make it in a Blake Coleman type role but hey he's 21 and you always need complimentary bottom six players that can fill in time for penalty killing and other spots as needed so Anderson, uh, I think, deservedly moved up in the list, and it's arguable he's on that cusp of 10 and above. Because after after Anderson, we're talking about the best prospects and the NHL players. Mm. Other than, I mean, I know we talked about Hayden and Mueller last week. Right. And they're NHL players, too. Well, we're not sure about Hayden, but nevertheless... Coming in at number nine, moving up from number 11 last year, is Jesper Boakvist. People are excited for Boakvist. The community uh, results put him at eighth. Uh... Very close with the guy who finished actually finished eighth overall, but he was a top ten guy across the board among the community and the writers, and it's a very good reason as to why he did very well in Sweden last season. He did very well. He didn't do so well in terms of production at the World Junior Championships, but he was part of a silver medal winning roster uh, a season or so ago. But he did break out for Brindis last season. He did. He played very well. And most importantly, the Devils signed him to a, an entry-level contract with a European release clause. So the Devils are basically saying, you know what? We are willing to take the chance that if it doesn't work in New Jersey, you can go back to Sweden for another year. But the fact of the matter is, you know, there's a reason to get hyped for this guy. You got to see it a little bit at the Prospects Challenge, and you saw it a little bit yesterday in Newark. And again, as we discussed earlier, I think he took a step forward in that ultimate goal. And if he keeps it up, you know, the coaches are going to have some tough decisions to make to fit him on the roster because this is not a guy that you just keep in the press box and rotate him out with some other guy like Kevin Rooney. This is a guy you want playing if you're going to have him. So lots of people are excited. And he's only 20, Dan. Like, he's still a young guy. Yeah, Corey. Plenty, plenty, uh, oh, plenty sorry. Of room to grow. Go ahead. Yeah. Plenty of room for Bokefist to go. Well, right. Corey Massack also just wrote a uh, a nice little piece on him as well in the case he's making for the NHL roster spot over on The Athletic. So uh, if you like that kind of stuff, check it out for sure. Corey's a great writer, and he's been very good covering the Devils uh, since coming on to The Athletic. But yeah, the, you know, it basically just talks about Boquist and what he's done to prove that he's NHL ready. And it, it seems like he is very, very motivated not to go back. Absolutely. And he, and he should be. Mm-hmm. It would be a little disturbing, not disturbing, but it would be disturbing. disappointing. It'd be disappointing. There, there's a more appropriate uh, term. Or disappointing if he wasn't right. trying to make the team. And before Hughes, you'd have to say he was the best offensive prospect in the system. 
Yeah, definitely. And that's a big reason why he was a top 10 finish in our top 20, top 25 under 25 list. Mm -hmm. Coming in at number eight is a man who's about to leave the list after this season because he's 24 is Miles Wood. He finished fifth last year. Uh, He finishes eighth here uh, this year. Uh, Basically, last season was a bit of a struggle for him last season. Um, He took a step back, so to speak, but who did it on a 29th place Devils team? He was really improved in in the season prior. Which got him to fifth over fifth on the list. You know, that lo- lovely blend of speed, but also playing with some type of a clue. Again, last season he sort of resorted zor- some some of his bad habits. I think the coaches are still doing him a disservice by having him chase dump-ins rather than go in a line with guys who can carry the puck in. And he also needs to be taught how to stop shooting from every chance and everywhere on the ice that he has a chance to. But the fact of the matter is he does have an offensive skill set. That speed is an asset. He's an NHL player. For a guy that was drafted in the middle of the 2013 draft at, that nobody heard of at the time, it's, it's a pretty good accomplishment of what he's done so far. That being said, he's a solid bottom six winger. If he can get his game to where it was two seasons ago, then we're going to be very happy with that contract and happy with his position and happy that he finished eighth in his final appearance on the top 25 under 25. If he can learn to finish, he'll improve his stock and perception dramatically like he it seems like every game he plays he gets sprung for like three breakaways and can't score on any of them and especially well, now that the devils have uh, you know suban in the back line capable of making those stretch passes and more skilled players up front to find him and spring him for those opportunities that's something that he should definitely get better at because he'll have no shortage of chances this season to score off the breakaway well it's not even just the finishing dan it's like the guy if you ever look at a shot map of his shots like it's just like all over the place. Like mm-hmm. he's never seen – if he sees the net, he's going to try for it. And there are times where that's okay, where you're fine with that. But over the course of 10 games, 20 games, a season, you don't want to see that. You want to see him get into positions where it's a good place to shoot. You don't want to shoot him from behind the dot by the half wall. You want to get him closer to the center. You want to get him closer to the net. Uh, because as you say, his finish isn't that good. And wood shot – I wouldn't say it's bad, but it's definitely not – it's definitely not at a place where I want to see him shooting 40 footers, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. No, exactly. Anyway, so moving forward, let's talk about a guy who re- also should be shooting the puck a lot more, but not just judiciously, but just more in general, is our number seven man on the list, Pavel Zaka. So he comes in at 22. He just got paid, got paid pretty well, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is not. He was not available at either game since he is sorting out some visa issues. So he hasn't even practiced in training camp yet because – He's got to sort out his visa issues. Nevertheless, he showed some real flashes of potential, and he showed some signs of life. Last season was kind of rough to start. He was sent down to Binghamton for a couple games to get his groove back, so to speak. Uh, defensive, defensively, he's pretty good on the penalty kill. He was one of the best penalty killers by a number of underlying metrics. The guy just needs to shoot the puck more and be more aggressive in playing playing on the puck and he has the body he has the offensive skill set his shot is actually not that bad he just needs to use it more often and he's one of those guys where i feel like the right coach can make him into a much better contributor than what he currently is he's still 22 so there's still some room for growth but we're starting to get closer and closer to that point where it's like what you see is what you get Mm -hmm. um nevertheless i think this contract he signed was okay I think it's a fair value given the current market. So we'll see how he does uh, when he finally is able to get going in New Jersey. So seven is where he finishes up. And last on our list for this particular quintile is Mackenzie Blackwood Mm. coming in at six. And this is a big surprise for me because last year he finished 21st. And there were a couple years he wasn't even in the top 25. Because quite frankly, as a goaltender and as a professional – he was not that good. <laughs> the numbers were just not that good. Yes, the B Devils were not that good. Two seasons ago, he had to play some games with Adirondack in the ECHL. He had to go down a tier to get some games, which is somewhat common for goalies since rosters, lots of games are only limited for them. But the big thing was he got called up for 23 NHL games last season, and he played well. And it wasn't just because Corey Schneider and Keith Kincaid were terrible at the time, because they were. But the fact of the matter is that he objectively played well on his own. His save percentage overall was 91.8%, which is a little bit above league average in all situational play, which for a guy that was, you know, based on his work so far in the AHL, you would just sit there and go, no, this guy's not going to be a 
NHL goalie, it's like, oh, he might actually be one. Well, also consider, like, you can remove that outlier in Calgary when Hines left him in for all nine goals yeah. against. Yeah, but then, then why can't I throw out the outlier yet when he had a shutout? Well, that's different. Shutouts are more common <laughs> than being let in for nine, being allowed to keep the net for nine Look, goals against. Is, How often does that it, happen? The point is, Dan, is that despite being let kept in net for nine goals in Calgary, he still had an above NHL average save percentage. Mm-hmm. My point is this. For a guy that objectively, if you looked at the numbers of what he was doing at the AHL level, you would just go, I don't, I don't see it. What, why is this guy a prospect? Move on. But the fact of the matter is that he got called up and he demonstrated why the Devils believed in this guy. He's not only just big, but he moves very well for his size. His fun, his his mechanics look solid. He is he doesn't get rattled like that nine goal game in Calgary. He didn't like smash his stick or throw a fit or do anything like Patrick Wall or Ed, Ed Belfort would ever think of doing. He kept in his game, and he played well despite being on a really bad Devils team. <laughs> so, yeah. so the fact of the matter is, he got a big boost from everybody involved and if he can prove dan that he's really an nhl goaltender and again the devils are kind of living and dying by their goaltenders this season so they're betting on that he's for real if he's for real you can lock him in in the top five uh for the next couple years because the 22 year old he's on that cusp right now awesome so that's your five yeah so we're already getting into territory of players that you know are definitely nhl level if not already in the nhl but people that have been talked about league-wide. So these top five are going to be especially interesting to see. I mean, I think we know a few names that are guaranteed to be on there already and in some order that we already know. But it is important to note that these top ten are all pretty close, if not already, in the NHL. So it's good. We have a lot of good prospects that are still pretty young and developing and can learn a lot in their games to help the Devils down the line. Right, and that's a big reason why this is a top 25 under 25 list and not a list of prospects or a list of guys, best devils outside of the NHL or anything like that. It's because this helps us get a gauge on where the devils are with respect to their youth movement. You're as an NHL team or any professional sports team for that matter. It's imperative to sustain success is to have a constant stream of young talent, not only being acquired by the team, but also being developed and being given opportunities to play. If you look at soccer, there are organizations that have that spend tons of money on young players, but because of the pressures of the league or what the, whatever the chairman says, they never get a chance. They have to be loaned out. They have to be transferred, and then they request a transfer somewhere else. And then those players, the, the t- fans are like, "Wait, we the team spent X amount of money to develop this guy, and what are we getting out of this?" So it's it, it's important that. We this is why we include, as you say, the NHL players and the guys who are fighting for NHL jobs, because we want to highlight who those guys are, along with the guys who are already there to see where they all stack up. And I think you'll get a great look at that with the final five next week. It's so crucial to remember that these guys' development looks completely different now than it did a year ago because they do have more experienced and talented players to learn from now as well as not having to play out of their depths on the Devils or Binghamton's depth chart. It's important not to stunt their development by, you know, kind of ruining their confidence, throwing them in situations that they don't belong. It's nice to have the talent surrounding them that they're able to learn from, that they're able to learn more about they obviously have seen these players uh, as they you know achieve their own nhl dreams but it's best not to have a situation just to take it to football to us for a second if for someone like josh rosen who went from a cardinals team that didn't give him anything to work with last year and just kind of threw him into the fire to a dolphins team that has traded every single one of their good players like his career while promising coming out of school looks like it'll be stunted just based on what he's surrounded by and not really being put in a position to succeed and that's a great modern example of why development is not just give a guy a lot of minutes and let him play and he'll figure out for some people it works that way for some people they just need time and at that point, you may say, OK, the team stinks, but you're going to play a lot. So whatever. But you're right, especially in a sport like football, where uh, talent and, and success is definitely team driven. Like the quarterback needs good, a good line. It needs good receivers. Similar to hockey. Yes, the goaltender can steal the game for you, but they're going to still need somebody to score the goals for them to make it a win. You know, there's a lot of interlocking pieces here. And to that extent, you're right. Some some players 
the best situation is not to go to a place where they're just going to play a lot. It's to go to a place where they can be utilized to the best of their abilities to how the coaches see them and to work on those abilities in those situations. And uh, that's a big reason why I liked seeing in the Montreal game, for example, that Anderson and Maltsev were your top penalty-killing forwards. And, and as much as I don't want P.K. Subban taking a regular penalty-killing shift, again, that's driven partially by roster. But the fact of the matter is that they were willing to give those guys opportunities because in Bingman, being Hampton, that may be where their opportunities are. And if they want to get to New Jersey at the next level, they the New Jersey coaches may say, look, if you can kill penalties, we'll consider a call-up of you. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely. It, it's just easier for them to do things like that now that they have more pieces to work with, and they can. I mean, you never know who can unlock someone's game, but chances are that it'll be a more talented player showing them what to do. Rather, it will definitely help to have more talented players showing them what to do instead of just veterans. You know what I mean? Abs- yeah, absolutely. Is there anything you would like to add as we prepare for the remainder of preseason? Just to add that I'm very excited to see how this preseason continues to develop. Just watching the games, watching two games at once was a very unique situation, but seeing anyone in Devil's uniforms flying around and just the sound of it all made me super happy, especially since New York football has crumbled once again in both directions. Yeah, let's not talk about that. That's <laughs> that's, that actually is depressing. Yeah, that's it's super upsetting. That's all being resolved, but I'm really excited to get things going. We're so close to the start of games that matter, and I'm equal parts intrigued and excited to see how this team responds. It seems like there's a good air and they're not doing that same trip that they've done the last couple seasons. As far as I know, they might at the end of camp, but you know, the trip that was like West point trip. And then last year's was in part of their international series in Sweden and Switzerland. So I wonder what they're going to do, if anything this year, but if not, I'm interested to see how this team gels. I love the celebration after the goals yesterday. I loved all the interviews. It seems like everyone's getting along nicely. So how cohesive can they be as a unit? That remains to be seen. And how cohesive can we be as a unit? We'll continue to try to be that way as we bring you more episodes week after week. So happy to bring it to you guys. And we appreciate all the feedback and support that you've given us in the first month of the podcast. It's been really encouraging. We're looking forward to interacting with you guys about the season as things develop. So like I said, thanks again for listening. It's been Garden State of Hockey, and we'll catch you guys next week. Thank you for listening.